I want to prepare the soil for today's message by doing some theology proper. Woo! <laughs> by asking you to consider two things which at first glance may seem to be a contradiction. Here they are. Number one, God is love. Number two, yet there are things in this world that God hates. That God is love and there are things in this world that God hates. Can those two truths coexist? The Bible says they can and the Bible says they do. God's very nature, his divine essence is love. Scripture makes that very clear. His whole nature and essence is love. And yet because he is perfectly true and entirely righteous and infinitely holy, he must necessarily necessarily hate anything that is contrary to his nature. Biblically, the object of God's hatred can be summed up in a, a number of general terms, each of which we could spend lots of time walking through the particular nuances, but here's some of them. Wickedness, evil, idolatry, rebellion, sin, and unbelief. Getting more specific, already this morning in our call to worship, we read from Proverbs 6, which showed us seven things that God hates. Seven things he specifically hates. Here they are. Those who are arrogant or proud, liars who seek to mislead and deceive, murderers who take innocent life, a person who devises wicked schemes, those who rush toward evil things, people who bear false witness against others, those who sow division among God's people. Now, while that list is not exhaustive, there are many other things that God specifically hates. It certainly provides for us a good list of categories of sin that we should be aware of, lest we are tempted to fall into those things, because we can, right? Can we become prideful? We ought to admit that. Are we tempted to lie at times? Of course. Do we sometimes choose evil things? Yes. Are we prone to falsely gossip? And bear false witness about others? Yes. Have we ever sown division between people in the body of Christ? Now, the beauty of this, of being a child of God, is that we can, as we see these things creep into our lives, we can repent of those things, right? And we can trust that Christ has covered that with his blood. But we should never forget that God hates these things. They're an abomination to him. There's another thing to notice on this list. You've heard it said, I've heard this said since I was... A child. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Sounds good, but it's not biblically true. Notice that Proverbs 6 doesn't list just things that God hates or actions that God hates. He talks about people, types of people that God hates. Now, the reason for that is simple. It's logically, you cannot separate sin from the sinner. God hates lying, yes, but lying involves a person, a person who chooses to lie. So God not only judges the lie, but he judges the liar as well. So we don't want to be misled, friends. God does infinitely disapprove of sinners because sin is an expression of rebellion against him and against all that is good and true. So we've got to know these things. This is important. We can't just uh, fall victim to platitudes because they look good on a bumper sticker on the back of a car. Now, here's where it gets complicated for us and a little bit confusing at times. The Bible also teaches that God loves everything that he made, including human beings, so much so that he sent his one and only son into the world to be the savior of the world. But even as we say that, we have to avoid the simplistic error of looking at the word love in a one-dimensional fashion. There are distinctions that have to be made in terms of God's love. 
Yes, God has a very kind and benevolent heart towards his creation. Sometimes we refer to this as common grace, right? Not only has he shown us amazing love by sending his only begotten son into the world, but he also continues to graciously, he's not obligated to this, but to graciously care for humanity and to provide for humanity. The Bible says this, even for those who who reject him, the Bible says, he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Common grace. God continues to provide for even people who hate him. And then there is a distinct particular love that God has for his son and for all human beings who are found in his son. All human beings who have been adopted into the divine family. But before a person repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, make no mistake, he or she is an enemy of God. An enemy of God. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinning, while we were in the process of rebelling against him, Christ died for us in particular. That's an amazing love, isn't it? When I was lost and living in darkness... He didn't just hate my sin, he hated me because I was living in rebellion. I had a rebellious heart and in choosing to draw me to himself while I was in that state is a love that I can't even express in words. I certainly didn't deserve it. Finally, let's remember this before we move on, that right now there is great hostility between God and the world that we live in, this fallen world. Great hostility between God and this world system. 1 John 2 makes this clear. All that is in the world is not from the Father. In Ephesians 2, we read that there is a course or an age of this world that is ruled by a prince, right? A spiritual prince who is evil, who is operating within the sons of disobedience. Therefore, God says, do not love the world or the things in the world because someday all those things are going to pass away. Grant already talked about it this morning. They are temporary. They are fleeting. They may feel good, but they're all going to pass away in the end. And so he counsels us, in contrast, focus on things that are eternal. Whoever does the will of God will live forever. So this idea of love and hate in Scripture can be complicated. We'll get back to that later because we're going to talk about you and I loving our lives or hating our lives. For now, grab your Bibles and let's go to John 12. We'll start there. John chapter 12, find verse 19. We're going to back up just slightly to something that I... I mentioned briefly last Sunday. We'll start in verse 19. We'll read through verse 26 together. I wanted to go further this week, but there's just so much here. How surprising, huh? Recall that last Sunday we covered what the church has traditionally called the triumphal entry. Do you remember what I called it? The tragic entry. The tragic entry, right? Where Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem for the final time. And as those crowds ran out to meet him and they shouted, Hosanna, right? And they shouted, look, the king of Israel. In verse 19, we read about how that caused panic and fear among the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Verse 19 said, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. And we paraphrased that last week because that's awkward in the Greek. We paraphrased it as this. They looked at each other and said, this delay in arresting Jesus is not helping us. It's not helping the situation at all. And they say, look at the end of verse 19. Look, the world is going after him. This is panic. This is, they can feel their power slipping away, right? They can can feel their status being usurped by this rebel rabbi from Galilee. 
And then to prove the point that the world really was going after Jesus, in the next few verses, what John is going to tell us is this little side story about some Greek people, a contingency of Greeks who come to Jerusalem and request a private audience with him. Now, let's look at our timeline again, because we've been looking at this each week, and we keep moving closer into, into the Passion Week. As I mentioned last Sunday, among the four gospel writers, John gives us the fewest amount of details about the public movements of Jesus during the Passion Week. So as we move from verses 19 to 20, he has skipped over an entire day. So you have to know that. So we've been in those first three boxes up to the triumphal entry. Now we've skipped over to that gray box. It's Tuesday now when these Greeks come and ask to see Jesus. So if we, if we piece sort of, you know, put together the story using all four Gospels, Here's what we know so far. On Sunday, as we covered, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. All he does that day, he comes into the city, he observes what's happening in the temple, and then he turns around and he goes where? Back to Bethany, just two miles outside the city where his friends live, right? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He goes back to Bethany. On Monday, according to the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus does two important things. In the morning, he leaves Bethany, he goes, he goes back to Jerusalem on the way he sees a fig tree that has no fruit on it, right? And he curses it. He curses the fig tree because there's no fruit. A really important metaphor, right, that we need to understand that when there's no fruit, something is thrown away, correct? And that, that fig tree withers. Then he goes into the city and he cleanses the temple for the second time. He drives the money chain with a whip. He drives the money changers out of the temple court so that he can restore it as a place of prayer. So those are the two big things he does on, on Monday. Now we come to Tuesday. And before we get to the story about this, these Greeks in the city, the Synoptic Gospels tell us about Jesus teaching all kinds of important parables and, and teaching all kinds of important topics. And he's doing it publicly in the temple courts. That's our setting now as we come to verse 20. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts in the very same court which he had cleansed the day before. He'd made room for the people so that it had been restored to a, a place of prayer and teaching. Look at verse 20 now. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Which feast is this? Passover, okay, at the feast. Remember, the high holidays. This is Passover. Verse 21. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew... Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so is it strange that we have this little story about these Greeks who want to meet with Jesus? Yes, at least on its face, this appears to be a little bit strange for a couple of reasons. Number one, that these Greeks would be there in the first place during the high holidays in Jerusalem. It's odd for Gentiles to be in Jerusalem at this time. Secondly, that John would, would, would create space and time to record what looks to us to be just a very boring, mundane fact. Yep, there's some non-Jews in the city and they want to see Jesus. Who cares, right? Seems pretty mundane. But third, it seems strange because 
it looks like a thread that John never pulls, right? We never really get a resolution as to why they came, what they were looking for, what they want to talk to Jesus about, or what happens to them. Verse 26 looks like a dead end to the whole thing. So it seems strange, but this is, that's really only at first glance. I want to tell you that there's some really important things happening here. More than meets the eye. So let's dig in a little bit deeper. Who would these Greeks have been? We don't know. <laughs> there, there's so many people, so many characters in Scripture, we're just not given the details. We don't know. Obviously, they've come from some part of the Greek-speaking world, which in the first century was vast, right? They could have come from any number of places around the Mediterranean Sea. It's possible they were just curious Greek travelers. Greeks were known for this. They were curious. They loved philosophy. They liked to ask questions. Maybe they were academics, and they just they had heard something about Jesus' reputation, and so they wanted to see him for themselves. That's possible. But more likely, what these Greeks are is what we call God-fearers. What that means is they had come to admire the law and the ethics of Torah, but they hadn't been so committed to Judaism, I don't blame them, that they weren't circumcised and become actual Jews. Okay, so, so they're like, I'm, I'm partway in. I admire Judaism, the ethics, the law. It's all great. But they haven't yet become what the Bible calls a proselyte, which be a Gentile who came under circumcision and officially became a Jew. And because they're not Jews, they were prohibited under pain of death of going anywhere into the inner part of the temple, right? They could be out in the far outer court, the very place that Jesus cleansed the day before. They could be there. They could pray. They could listen to teaching, but that was it. So here's my guess, and I'm just speculating here, but here's my guess. These Greeks had heard something about the type of teaching that Jesus was doing. Okay, It was very revolutionary for that day. They had definitely heard something about the miracles and rumors of miracles, and they were intrigued enough to seek an audience for this reason. This is why I think what I think is really going on. What they want to know is, can we as Gentiles follow you? As outsiders, outside of Judaism, is there a place for people like us in your school? Could you become our rabbi and we sit under your teaching? Now, in order to not make a, a, a public scene of this, to keep it sort of private, they go to one of the disciples and say, can we get a private audience with Jesus? Now, how do you go about doing that in the midst of Passover week when there's hundreds of thousands of people all over the place? Well, John gives us a clue in verse 21. These Greeks approach a particular disciple. Which one? Philip. Why Philip? Our best guess is he has a very Greek-sounding name. Okay, so this is not Yohanan. This is not Yaakov. This is not Shimon. This is not Matayahu. This is Philippos. Makes sense, right? So the Greeks are like, if there's anybody among his closest, his inner circle, who's going to give us a hearing or at least give us an ear, it's going to be somebody with a Greek background. So they come to Philip, right? So, by the way, also John reminds us that Philip is from where? From Bethsaida in Galilee. That's up in the area of the Decapolis, north of the Sea of Galilee. In that region, Greeks are very common. So, so the, this Greek contention, I think, does their homework, and they're like, that's the guy to talk to. Now, it's interesting. It appears here that, that Philip doesn't really know what to do with the request. So he goes to his friend, Andrew, Andreas, by the way, another Greek-sounding name, and he says, what do we do? And they begin to reason 
right? They begin to reason like, is this, the, is this important enough for us to bother the master? He's teaching right now. He's got crowds around him. Should we bother him? By the way, there's really good reason for them to, to consider that carefully. You might know the story earlier. Matthew told of a Gentile woman who once interrupted Jesus, came to her because her daughter was demon-possessed. And Jesus, before healing the girl, made it clear to everybody there that day. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So if they hesitated in that moment, it makes sense. But then they must have talked about it and agreed this was important enough to go bother the master. So you can picture now Andrew and Philip going, okay, are we doing this? Let's do this. And so they begin to press them their way through the crowds, pushing their way to get up to the master. And then you can sort of picture Philip standing next to him, just waiting for a moment, right? And it, Jesus pauses and he whispers in his ear, Lord, there's some Greeks here who want to talk to you. Well, now what? Well, at first glance, it looks like Jesus just ignores the request, right? He ignores it. He doesn't give his disciples a direct answer, but trust me, there's a lot going on here. In reality, he does respond to the news that these Greeks have come to see him. It's in verse 23. It's very short and to the point. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his response. Why? Well, I picture him basically saying, okay, Philip, so there are these Greeks here who want to see me. Good. Here's the truth that they need to know. This is what matters to them. The hour of my cross has arrived. Now, up until this point, how many times have we seen this? His hour was in the future. How many times did he say, it's not my time yet? Here, for the first time, he says, it's time. My hour has come. And scholars have looked at this, and they believe that it's this request from the Greeks that serve as kind of a signal to Jesus that officially this hour had come. His own, his fellow Jews, were in the process of rejecting him, and now he hears that his other sheep, from John 10, are now seeking him, the Greeks. Rejection of my, from my own, and now I've got Gentiles coming to Jerusalem to hear me. The official time has come, right? And we know this from later New Testament writings that this had to take place, right? First, Israel has to reject her Messiah, and then the gospel is going to go out to the Gentile world, all keeping with the principle that we read, particularly in the book of Romans, that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. This is the outplaying of that. And it's so interesting to me to sort of see a... a, a in, in Hebrew, there's all this parallelism. You see all these different structures in the scripture. At the birth of Christ, we had Gentiles from the east who came and sought Jesus at his manger. And now at the end of his life, we have Gentiles from the west who come to Jerusalem seeking him at his cross. And this is the whole purpose behind the incarnation, right, of, the, of God the Son. His mission to save, only it's going to happen in a way that nobody expects. Now, they should have had they read the scriptures, had they listened to Jesus, but they all seem so surprised. Jesus says, my time has come, and this is what the Gentiles need to see. They need to see my sacrificial death. That's Jesus' answer to the fact that the Greeks are there. Now, the question might be asked if this connection to the Greeks is as significant as John thinks, why doesn't Jesus at least take the time to speak with them? And again, I think the answer to that question comes down to the Father's timetable. Right? Jesus is on a very specific timetable. He has been from the start. Right, He is sovereignly in control of all these events. He knows when his time is coming. And right now is not the time for the Greeks. By his own admission, he said, I took on flesh to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
The time of the Gentiles is about to come, though, isn't it? In fact, what's the next book after the Gospels? The book of Acts. It's the entire theme of the book of the Acts is Israel has rejected her Messiah, and now the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. So it's coming, but right here in this moment, Jesus can't lose his focus. He cannot lose the fact, can't turn aside from his goal in this moment, and that is to be glorified by way of his sacrificial death. And that's what he's now going to talk about in verse 24. Look at verse 24. I'm going to put this picture on the screen so you can understand the, the word picture. You know, in Israel in the first century, Jesus constantly and even the disciples talk about these agricultural things, right? And we're like, don't know what they're talking about. Not a farmer. So sometimes images help, right? To know what a kernel or a a grain of wheat actually looks like. Look at verse 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain or a kernel of wheat falls into the earth, better, unless a grain or kernel of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So catch the principle here. Dying precedes life, and dying produces fruit, Jesus says. Now, if you wanted to, you could take one of those kernels of, of, of wheat there, and you could isolate it, and you could put it under a piece of glass, and you could protect it, right? Keep it from corruption for months and months and months. And at the harvest time, what would you have? A single kernel of wheat. Good job, right? That's all you'd have. That's not helpful. The only way to produce a crop of wheat from that kernel is to let it die, is to bury it in the ground. That's what Jesus is saying. By doing that, you produce a harvest of wheat, not just one kernel. And so Jesus is describing himself as that kernel of wheat. If, we're, if many are to be saved, he first has to die and be buried. Remember, at the triumphal entry, the people cried out, Hosanna. That meant save us now. That's what they wanted. Be our savior now. In this moment, we want a political king. What they failed to grasp was that before he could become the lion, the conquering king, he first had to become the lamb, the suffering servant. His death on the cross is going to put him into the ground that will produce much fruit. It will bring many sons and daughters to glory, and not just Jews, but Greeks as well. Men and women from every race, tribe, and tongue. So what a beautiful agricultural metaphor Jesus gives us. Now, how much did the disciples understand at that time? Not much, but they would have connected the dots later with his death and burial, and of course, resurrection. Now, here comes the mic drop in the passage, and this is where we're going to camp for the rest of the sermon, verses 25 and 26. The principle of death preceding life and death producing fruit is not just limited to Jesus. It's for you and I. It's for every single person who claims him as Lord and Savior. Now, if if you do that this morning, if you claim him to be your Savior and your Lord, and I hope you do, then pay close attention to this. It is good, but not enough to stand back and say, well, thank God Jesus was willing to to die and produce life for me. Thank God. Jesus saved you for more than that. He saved you for a reason. One of those things being so that you will produce in your walk with him a harvest of fruit to his glory. That's what verses 25 and 26 are about. Yeah, Jesus had to die, had to be put into the earth so he could produce much fruit. But now he says, look, if you're my follower, that's your role as well. 
Now, how does that play out? We're going to get to that, right? But first, let me give you two well-known passages that speak to this very issue of fruit. Romans 7, 4. You also, Christians, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, okay, joined to him, joined to Jesus, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. That is not a suggestion, right? That is not a, well, I hope this happens. This is our purpose in being saved, that we might bear fruit to the glory of God. Looking forward to John 15. I know we'll get there in about two years, right? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, that connects back to the fig tree, right? There's no fruit on the fig tree. It's taken away. So, so be warned in that. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Ooh, we don't like that. You mean he's going to prune us in our lives? Yeah, so that we'll bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We know these verses, right? So aren't we grateful that Jesus was willing to die and be buried so that he could produce much fruit and bring many of us to glory? Are we equally excited that he calls us to do the same? I hope so. So how does this principle work? How do you and I die in such a way that we produce a harvest of, of fruit? Now, Obviously, I'm not standing up here saying, you know what, we can somehow imitate Jesus in his sacrificial death for the sins of others. That is way above our pay grade, right? But we can imitate him by daily dying to ourselves in order to produce fruit. Now, what does that look like? That's verse 25. This is a hard one. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world We'll keep it to life eternal. I was going to call this sermon, Hate Your Life. <laughs> I mean, then I was like, oh, that, that, that just requires too much explaining, right? But it, it's, that's what it says, right? So step back for a moment. Jesus began by declaring this, this truth about himself, a hard truth. Don't forget, Jesus is a full man. And he understands what's coming, the agony and the pain of the cross. This is a hard truth. The hours come for me to be glorified through this torturous death. But now he makes that hard truth about himself a hard truth for us. If you want to live forever, you must hate your life in this world. So, so friends, follow me to the cross and die with me. Okay, Jesus, that's easy. Right, Because we, we can get glib about these things. Like, oh yeah, I've read that. H have you processed that on any deeper level, what that means? If you want to live forever, hate your life in this world, follow me to the cross and die with me. That's a wild statement. Now, we should, we should know what Jesus means by that because he connects eternal life to it. If you want eternal life in heaven, you should know what he's talking about and how to apply it, Amen. And this brings us back to where we started this morning, to this issue of what it means to biblically love and what it means to biblically hate. Now, here's the thing. God loves perfectly and God hates perfectly. That is not true of us, right? Not true of us. While we're called to strive to align ourselves over time and it's a lifelong pursuit with what God loves and with what he hates, we will never do it perfectly. 
So in the meantime, while we're in these, in, in these imperfect bodies and living in this fallen world, what we learn to do is to love and to hate in degrees. And how do we do that? Well, we begin to put on certain things, right? Prioritizing those things as the things that please God, we put those things on. And at the same time, we put off other things, deplatforming them from our lives in increasing measure. So it's a matter of loving and hating in degrees as we mature in the faith. And again, it's a lifelong process. You are never going to gay. You're never going to go wake up one day and go, "I've done it. <laughs> I love perfectly and I hate perfectly." <laughs> Please never say that. It's a lifelong process. And here in verse 25, Jesus bluntly says it. Look, stop loving your life, friends. Stop loving your life in this world and start hating it. Man, we don't like that. Doesn't sound good, right? I mean, that's again, that's not bumper sticker Christianity. Don't tweet that tomorrow <laughs> in 130 characters or whatever. This requires explaining, doesn't it? What does he mean? Well, let me put two important principles on the table first, just so that you don't go to sleep on me this morning. No yawning. First, hating your life in this world isn't just for the dedicated few who choose to go into vocational ministry or choose to go into the mission field or become martyrs for the faith. This is for every single person who claims to love and follow Jesus. Everyone. So nobody, nobody opts out of this this morning. That's number one. Number two, hating your life is not something that's going to be natural for you. It's going to be very unnatural. It's never going to get done without significant thought, commitment, or effort. Because it's not natural. In other words, it's not going to happen by accident. And it's not one of those, I do it once and I'm done with it types of things. It involves a daily resolve and a daily striving in order to live in a way to put certain things on and put certain things off in a way that pleases God. So it's hard. You guys, anybody up for hard things? Okay, we'll get to that later as well. Now, an important caveat, hating our lives does not mean that we start to regard our lives as unimportant. Understand that. Hating your life does not mean, you, well, now I see that all these years on the earth, they're just, they just don't matter. It's unimportant. Absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. The life that you've been given down here on earth is precious because it's a gift from God. And he has a mission for every one of us, right? Every breath that we take comes from God. So we're to carry out the purposes of God in as many days as he ordains. He has ordained the number of days that we'll live on this earth. And every day is devoted to him, to serving him and to his glory. So we don't just give up and say, ah, it doesn't matter. We don't just say, well, I don't care anymore because I'm supposed to hate my life. Please don't misinterpret this and get to that conclusion. But still, hate doesn't hate seem like a really strong word? Like a really strong word. It's the Greek word miseo, a verb, right? And guess what it literally means? To hate. <laughs> That's really the only way you can translate it. 40 times in the New Testament that word is used, and 40 times it's translated as hate. I mean, I wish I had like a little detour. I could go, yeah, but it kind of means this. No, it means hate. Now, Here's what you need to know. The word is used to unsettle you. It's, it's, it's being used to shock you. So if it shocked you, you're like, well, that's good. You, then you understood what Jesus was trying to do. In fact, this is a, 
People who study languages will tell you this is a particularly Semitic form of argument to use hyperbole or overstatement in order to make their case. And the whole idea is, is that we're going to look at two things and one far outweighs the other. So what we're going to say is love this and hate this. Okay? In fact, D.A. Carson, who is one of my uh, you know, linguistic heroes, called this, quote, a particularly Semitic form of speech that articulates a fundamental preference, not hatred on an absolute scale. A preference, not an absolute hatred. I'll give you another example from the New Testament. Okay, You probably know this from, from Luke, right? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. And we go, whoa, hold on a second. Aren't we supposed to love everybody, even our enemies? Of course, and certainly our family. So why use that word hate? Well, in order to be a genuine follower of Christ, you and I have to be willing to give up anything and everything for his sake. And God forbid this would ever happen, but if we had to face a painful choice of choosing loyalty for family, blood family, or loyalty for Christ, we must choose Christ. We must. As painful as that would be, we must love him, and therefore, Semitically speaking, we must hate everything else. That's the, that's the argument being made here. So as D.A. Carson says, it's a hatred by comparison, not an absolute hatred. It's a demand that we prefer one thing, or in this case, one person, over everything else. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. If not, listen again on the YouTube, on the, on the interwebs. So, do we understand that, that principle in terms of people? Okay, so what does it mean about our life then? I, I, I think it's, you can sort of wrap your arms around that, right? Like, I have to choose Jesus over every other person. What about hating my life? Does, that, does this mean I have to become a monk? I mean, are we doing it all wrong? Should we find a monastery somewhere? Right? I mean, medieval Christians thought that was the right answer, by the way, so we chuckle at it, but it's happened. Does it mean that we have to cut off all contact with non-believers? Well, obviously not. That's not biblical. Does this mean I can't enjoy anything here on earth? I mean, this is the first thing our minds go to. At least, okay, first thing my mind went to this week as I was prepping was, oh man, I enjoy too many things in this world. Come on, I'm not alone, right? Does this mean we have to just, I just have to become schlep rocks? <laughs> you have to be my, okay, raise your hand if you know what the reference to schlep rock is. All the old people, that's good. Look it up. Use the Googles and look it up. You know, or Eeyore, right? Uh, just can't enjoy anything. Going back to the passage in Luke about hating your family, what's the next verse? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Matthew sort of fills out that quote, so I'm going to put it up from Matthew 16. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There's the, there's the choice, right? You can love your life and forfeit your soul. You can hate your life, right? Find Jesus. That's the, the choice. But look at the three requirements. Deny self. Take up a cross, follow Jesus. And I would say in a nutshell, this 
This is the primary reason why so many people, why most people will push away from Christianity. No, thank you. This is too much for me, they say. This is why so many people who profess to be Christians but show so little evidence of it in their life because they don't want to do this. And Jesus says they're in danger of losing eternal life, right? Danger of of not making the cut because there's no evidence, there's no fruit in their lives because they don't want to do this. It's really hard. Human beings don't like the idea, idea of surrendering to anyone, even God, right? We're so prideful, like, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do, especially Americans, right? It's, it's, it's sort of bred into us. We don't like surrendering. We don't like having to make an intentional decision to deny the things that we want. If I want it, I want it. And I'm going to go after it because I want it. We don't like denying ourselves, our, our wants and desires. Too, for us, especially in the West, it, it, that's, the cost is too high. It's too painful to have to deny my urges, to deny the things that I want. I don't want to do this. We're also not interested in struggling or striving, or suffering, right? To do hard things. Oh, and by the way, we tend to lack discipline, self-control, focus. And then on top of all that, as you know, there's a lot of things in this earthly life that do bring a short-term happiness and comfort and pleasure. And guess what? They don't require a whole lot of work. They just sort of come to us. And they're easy, right? So we embrace them. What do we find ourselves doing? We wholeheartedly embrace those things that come to us that are easy, that bring us comfort and pleasure and entertainment and all these things. And then what do we do? We, we, we take them in to such a degree that they become habits in our life. They become non-negotiables. I have to have these things. This is what makes me happy, we say. And then we set out to feed those habits each and every day and become deeply rooted in us. Over time, they become the highest priority of our lives. We will end up doing almost anything for those things. Because what are we looking for? That short-term burst of happiness and pleasure. And here's the thing. Some of those things may not even be necessarily bad. Some of them might even be things we could say, well, they're, they're sort of profitable in an earthly sense. But here's the danger. If we leave our hearts unguarded, we can easily begin to prefer them over Christ. We prefer them over Christ. Whether we admit it or not, we allow things to become more precious to us than he is. And they become a competing idol in our hearts. They get lodged deep within us. We, we wake up in the morning, that's what we want. We, we say we want Jesus, and we sort of do somewhere off in this part of our brain, but that thing, that's really what I'm after today. I want that. It becomes idolatry. Competing idols in the heart. Now here's the cool thing. Jesus knows this about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He has suffered temptation of every kind. He's actually felt it as a human being. He knows us really well. He knows our propensity towards idolatry. Friends, that is why the language is so strong. Hate your life. That's why he uses this language. Because he knows you. 
Hate your life, he says. Put Jesus above everything else. If you love him, you will necessarily hate anything, anything that creeps into your life that seeks to overtake him and become the priority in your heart. Hate it. Hate it with a passion. I read a story this week written by a fellow pastor, and it it made me chuckle. He said he had a man in his congregation who had taken a job that was not the type of job that any Christian should have. It was a, it was a job that involved sinful, sinful stuff. And so he confronted this man after church one day. He said, you have to quit that job. And the man said, look, I got to eat. And the pastor said, no, you don't. And he was serious. You don't. The only thing you have to do is follow Jesus and serve him. The guy was stunned. What do you mean? I have to eat. No, you don't. You follow Jesus and you trust him to provide. That man wasn't hating his life. And he wasn't trusting in God's promises. And so that pastor went on to describe hating your life in all these terms. He says, no, you don't have to feel fulfilled in your marriage. You don't have to succeed in your business. You don't have to feel happy about the way your life is turning out. You don't have to get a better car or a bigger house. You don't have to do or have any number of things that seem very, very important to you in this world. The only thing you have to do is follow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. To make him the priority of your life. So am I saying you can't enjoy anything? No, I'm not saying that. You can and should enjoy your family. You can and should enjoy a good meal or an entertaining movie or a vacation that you take and so much more. But you must not place it above worshiping and serving Christ in your life. Any of those things. And if you feel that coming on, you must begin to hate it because you love Jesus. That's the message here. You've got to make adjustments in your heart. Guys, this requires heart work. And I I know we don't like it. We don't like doing these things very much. But it requires getting away and saying, okay, Lord, I, I need to examine my heart. Will you help me do that work? Will you show me the things that are creeping into my life that either are idols right now or have the propensity to creep in and take over where you belong? It's not going to be easy or natural. You're not going to just bounce into it one day and go, oh, I'm doing hard work. You have to want to do this because you love Jesus. Now let's go back to the first part of Jesus' statement there in verse 25 because that matters too. He says, he who loves his life loses it. So what does it mean to love your life then? We looked at what it means to hate your life. What does it mean to love your life? I'll just suggest two things really quickly that this means. Number one, living as if this life is all that matters. If you're living as if this is it, this is all that matters is right now. In other words, you're failing to live in light of eternity. And as you do that, as you, your eyes are not lifted above, but they're down on the world, you're simultaneously pursuing all the things that this world, all of these things that you think are going to satisfy you, but every day you wake up and go, I'm still not satisfied. Isn't that amazing how we do that? This is going to meet my needs. I wake up the next day, my needs aren't met. This is going to satisfy me. I wake up the next day, I'm not satisfied. And we keep doing it. <laughs> right? It's the definition of insanity. Living as if this life is all that matters. That there is no age to come. Second thing, living for the same things that people in the world live for. Living the same way. Is there or is there not any obvious difference between your life and the the life of the average unbeliever in Santa Clarita? 
Or are your priorities and goals and habits and likes pretty similar to the average person you bump into on the street? If you're living for today only, and that's what's driving your thinking and driving your priorities and your choices, then Jesus warns you in this passage that you may be in eternal danger. So deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow him. Be a true disciple. Be a true disciple. Let me close with the good news then. And this comes out of verse 26. Look at the reward. Look at the reward that is promised to the, to the faithful servant. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Don't get that wrong, right? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. He must imitate me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Look at that reward. You will be wherever Jesus is. Right? Soon we're going to get to this beautiful passage in John 14. It's everybody's favorite passage from every funeral. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. If that doesn't cause goosebumps, shivers, if that doesn't cause you to just smile within and say, there is no greater promise than to be with Jesus for all eternity. What a reward we're being told there. For faithful, to be a faithful servant is to be wherever Jesus is, where our master is. And for eternity is a long time. For all eternity. And then second reward, this one, I, read, I had to read this like six times. God the Father will honor you. Are you kidding me? The creator of all things will honor you. I can't begin to imagine what that's like. But in some way, the promise here is that the Father will honor us for our faithful service to Christ, for our faithful service to his church, for our faithful service to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Is that not a great motivator to consider? That someday, I, again, it, it's, a, it's a bumper sticker thing, but I want you to really think about it. For you to pass from this life, to enter into eternity, to see Jesus face to face and to hear, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. To let the Father honor you. I can't wrap my head around it. But know these two things, and I, I promise I'm closing. <laughs> Hating your life is, number one, hard. But number two, it's glorious. And it's worth it. I mean, look, just amongst family here, being a genuine disciple of Jesus is hard. It's hard. Can we just admit it? It's, it's tough. And it's getting tougher in this world, isn't it? It requires denying self, something that doesn't come naturally. It requires taking not that broad path towards that wide gate where everybody else is going towards, saying, nope, I'm not going on the wide path to the big gate. It requires us doing, oh, here comes, there's that little path with a really small gate. And I'm going to go that way. That's not easy. It's hard. In a world that loves power and status and comfort and entertainment, it is hard to intentionally say, no, I choose to be a servant to Christ and a servant to others. That is hard. 
Remember that in Jesus' day, a cross wasn't something that was just inconvenient or irritating. When you took up a cross, you knew you were dying and that it would be painful. So to take up a cross and to follow Jesus on that path implies that there is a real cost in your life on this earth. And there's going to be some pain involved. So if you were sold a bill of goods by somebody who said, nah, it's easy. You just come in, you say a prayer, you get to go to heaven. No. It's hard. But friends, it's so glorious. It's worth it. Death precedes true life. Death produces in us a harvest of fruit that will echo throughout all of eternity. Our dying to self bears much fruit for God's glory. And if we'll follow him down that path to the cross, one day we will be with him forever in heaven, being honored by the Father. It's worth it. I don't know about you, but this is the way I want to strive to live whatever days God has left for me. And I don't know how many days those are, but this is the life I want to live. And that's the eternity I want to live. So I don't know about you, I'm all in. I'm all in, and I hope you are too. That's my prayer for you. Let's bow our heads.